Welcome back to Climbcast. I'm Amanda Garza, and I'm excited to welcome you back to episode two on incorporating teaching practices that foster well-being and encourage resilience with David Masuda. In this episode, David and Kate will get into a few more resilience coping skills you can try in your classroom, and we'll cover the last category for advancing student well-being, connecting to the environment. So welcome back. Uh, David, we talked about nurturing connection and we began a conversation on the first couple of concepts in building resilience and coping skills in our first episode. Uh, You noted that there are four categories to think about for building resilience and coping skills. We touched upon the first two, mindfulness and growth mindset. Mm, Perhaps we can pick up where we left off by talking about the third concept for building these great skills. Third one is this concept of gratitude. You mentioned before COVID, and what went along for me in that entire time frame was not just COVID, but at least in the United States, all of the social and racial unrest that happened after all of the horrible events that went on. I mean, it was almost a perfect storm of negative consequences, not only nationally, but worldwide that were going on. And it was very easy. In fact, I guess at some level still, it's very easy to kind of have this negative pessimistic outlook on where things are. This concept of gratitude is is one that can we actually affirm that there are good things in one life? And there are, I think for all of us, despite the fact that uh, it's very easy to start doom scrolling with the newspaper right now and the web, we can also recognize that there are some good things in our life. And not only are there good things in our life, but a lot of that source of goodness may lie outside of ourselves as well. And usually that means who we interact with, whether that be friends, families, colleagues, instructors, mm-hmm. all those sorts of things. So this idea of practicing gratitude, it is a skill to actively practice gratitude and you have to work at it, and, but you can cultivate it as long as you uh, have some intention to do so. Here's a technique I've not tried, but I actually heard about this recently from one of my colleagues in the resilience lab. He said, when students come to class, one of the things he said is, he'll say this to individual students, I'm so glad you chose to come here today because having your ideas and your thoughts in this class are really important. So a bit, he didn't use the word gratitude, but the fact that he said, I'm glad you're here today, I thought was really important. One of the things I've done in the past, and I've always found this to be helpful, is try to do a mid-course evaluation in terms of how are things going? You know, what can I do to change the way this class is designed to make it better, more useful, more meaningful, more interesting, more exciting for you? And of course, if you ask that information and don't act on it, they quickly figure out, well, that was that was just sort of a performative thing. Mm-hmm. But I always try to act on it. And when I do act on it, I'll make one change to the class and they feel like, oh, we do have a voice. We can make some difference. But I try to make sure that I really recognize that I appreciate the fact that they were willing and able to give me some gratitude. So it is that idea of telling them, hey, I'm really grateful you brought this up because I didn't understand that. And now I understand and I can try to make things better. Mm-hmm. I had mentioned before this whole idea of journaling. Over the years, I've always been a big fan of reflective writing and reflective journaling. And there's tons of literature out there and tons of resources on how to engage students in learning how to write that way. I try to make it understandable to them that it's not the words they put down, it's the process of putting words down that matters Mm -hmm. and that they're writing to themselves as an audience, not to anyone else. And one of the ways in which I can give them some guidance on how to use a journal is to to use it for gratitude. Mm -hmm. I remember years ago, uh, in a MPH class that I was teaching, this is an executive class, that I have them write weekly in their re- reflective journal. Actually, two anecdotes of this. One was they were taking my class, which was a relatively 
simple class compared to the other one they were taking at that time called epidemiology. That was a tough, tough class. And I remember yep. one of the really clever, bright students in week eight said, for my journal this week, I decided to write a haiku. And the haiku was, uh, two weeks to go, epidemiology is killing my soul. <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant, you know, the fact that epidemiology has that critical five or is it seven syllables in the middle. Uh, but I also shared this with the epidemiology instructor who, who really appreciated it as well. Mm-hmm. But the other, the other one, a little bit more poignant was I told her in this journal, you can write whatever you want. But this one student said, well, I know what I really intended to write about this week was my understanding about the inequities in population health in the United States. But frankly, what I really want to write about is the fact that I got fired from my job this week. Hmm. And to me, this was, and, and this went on about what this felt like and such. And I thought, this is exactly the kind of thing where you do send it in to me, but you're really writing to yourself. So this idea of writing to yourself is important. And one way to make that even more positive is to, at some regular interview, maybe once a month or however work, often works for you, write a journal entry around something you're grateful for, someone you're, mm. uh, you have gratitude towards. One of the things that I know Anne and Megan from the Resilience Lab talked to me about was this idea of a gratitude letter. Think about someone in your life that has done something really meaningful to you. Write a letter to them, handwrite a letter, not an email, not a text, handwrite a letter, and ideally, if you can, hand deliver it to them and just give it to them there. Mm-hmm. I used to, when I had fall quarter courses in health policy, tell students, okay, we're coming up in November. When you go back home for Thanksgiving holiday, I'm going to give you one piece of homework, and that's to talk to your angry, grumpy uncle about why the healthcare system needs to be improved. It'll ruin Thanksgiving, <laughs> but at least you will actually have a chance to have a conversation about this stuff. I did replace that with idea of saying, when you go home for Thanksgiving, See if you can write this gratitude letter. And if you can deliver it face-to-face, great. If you can't, at least mail it to them. And I got positive feedback from that. It was a lot, a lot better than talking to the angry uncle. Research on this really shows that not only does the recipient of the gratitude letter feel like they got something valuable out of it and meaningful and emotional, but just the fact of having written it and delivered it brings significant positive physical and emotional aspects to the writer. So this idea of gratitude, I think, is another great one to bring into the classroom. I will say that the first gratitude letter I wrote, I'm modeling again now, was to Anne and to Megan for inviting me to be a part of this project because it was just so critical to my health as as an instructor Mm -hmm. and as a human being. I think that that was part of my experience. I mentioned that I had incorporated some of these mindfulness practices in my classroom, very minimal, like two minutes at the start of class sort of thing. It ended up being as valuable to me as it was to the students because it was a tough, it was a tough quarter with hybrid and not hybrid and in-person and social distancing and changes on a dime. Having sharing just that moment of coming to class and being grateful that we're all here together and able to learn together was really, really powerful for me as well. There's one more component of the resilience and well-being, our coping skills. That's this concept of self-compassion. There's a professor at the University of Texas, Austin, Kristen Neff, who's kind of the the nation's expert on this concept of self-compassion. In other words, treating yourself with the same kind of kindness and care that you would give to a friend or a family member or a colleague. It's sort of the reverse of that golden rule. It's now sort of like, do unto yourself as you would have others do unto you. I've really become a fan of some of the work that Kristen has done on this concept of self-compassion. 
So there's a number of different principles or techniques or practices within this concept of self-compassion that we can all try to employ. I mentioned this concept or this practice of the faceplates and failures Mm -hmm. idea. And this idea of students responding to other students who had a horrible episode in their life around a failure. When another student commiserated or felt empathy or sympathy and said, I had the same kind of thing, it'll get better. It really is this concept of developing peer empathy. And I think one of the ways we can think about self-compassion is if, let's say you posted something on the face plants and failures board, and you had another student who tried to help you get through that and understand it and accept it as a, a blip in the progress of things, you could tell that that the student who wrote the initial thing, well, can you ever do that for yourself? Can you ever tell yourself that, yes, I failed, I'm probably going to fail again, but it's okay. So that idea of peer empathy turning into self-empathy and mm-hmm. self-support, self-compassion, I think is really important. I know that I try to tell them that, again, through a concept of modeling, that it's really important, I think, to prioritize some sort of self-care routine. You know, all of our students, well, I'll extend this. I think all of our students and all of us as faculty and staff, we all have tons of stress and anxiety, especially so over the last four or five years. So developing a self-care routine, I think, is important. I tell students, one of my favorite quotes that I always use a lot from Wallace Stevens was, perhaps the truth depends upon a walk around the lake. So I tell students, whenever I'm stuck trying to develop a paper or a class session or whatever it might be, or whenever I feel like I'm stuck just in a set of negative emotions, one of the things I do is I just go walk around the block. Mm -hmm. That idea, it's not quite a lake, but at least it means I'm getting outside (laughs) and I'm taking a break. And I mentioned to them just how frequently not only do the negative emotions start to melt away, but more often than not, maybe very more often than not, a solution to whatever was blocking what I was trying to do kind of pops into my head in that point in time. So I tell them, I make it a routine that whenever I have some of these situations, this is my self-care routine. I'm going to go out and do this. And it's amazing how well that would work. That's interesting, David, in that learning community that I mentioned that was run from Anne Browning's office this past year, one of the things they had us do was try and get out into nature. This is a segue into that last section, I think, Mm -hmm. but some of us were in basement offices and things like that. And if we couldn't get outside, they encouraged us to just go to the window and look out the window if you could, or look at some natural scene on the computer. And it was amazing how many people came back from just two or three minutes doing that just with big smiles on their faces, regardless of how they'd incorporated some aspect of nature into a little break. So it's sort of self-care and nurturing or connecting to the environment. Which is exactly a a great segue to this last section in the guidebook, this concept of connecting to the environment. I will say that the model for the University of Washington guidebook on well-being came from University of Texas, Austin. They have another terrific guidebook, which you can download for free. And we Mm -hmm. can probably put a link up to that. One of the things that we added that they did not have in the Austin guidebook was this concept of connecting to the environment. And that may relate to some degree of what it's like living in the Pacific Northwest. We know that we have just this phenomenal outdoor environment that we can all experience out there. And probably a lot of us, certainly me included, came here because of that. When we talk about connecting to the environment, part of this was the recognition that there's more and more research showing that connecting to immersing yourself in and reflecting on nature and the biological world is really important for our health, physical, Mm -hmm. emotional, spiritual well-being. All of those things are there. My wife and I just went out for a fairly long bike ride the other day, and I told her the, the thing I tell her on every instance in which we get out in nature, it's like, 
I can't believe I don't do this more often. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. So that gets back to that walk around the lake concept. We know probably both personally and from some of the growing body of research that this is an important thing to do. We also recognize that this concept of environment can mean two things. It can mean the outdoor environment of nature, but also the indoor environment. And this kind of brings us full circle to what our classroom designs are all about. So one of the things I think that we can talk about in terms of this categorization is this idea of what do, what do we know about how to bring the outdoor environment inside and what do we know about how to modify the indoor environment to make it more amenable to resilience and well-being. And as you mentioned, Anything we can do to try to bring people to the outside, whether that be actually go out and taking a walk, just looking out the window, even putting up a screensaver in breaks in your classroom that shows nature. All of those things can help bring people to nature. Even just bringing in a small plant or something, you know, once in a while. I've heard that one as well, bringing a plant into class. And I had this idea. I never got a chance to try this out yet, but I wonder what it would be to, I'm not a botanist, but can you find a plant? that on day one of class will be just a little bit of a green <laughs> thing sticking out. But by day 10, or maybe during mm -hmm. the final exam, mm -hmm. it's now flowering. If there was mm -hmm. a plant that would do that, then you could actually help students say, look, in the 10, 11 weeks of mm -hmm. our class, we went from just this little seedling to this beautiful flower. I think that's a brilliant one. <laughs> that's great. I love that. Yeah. A couple of ways I've tried to work on this as well is I've mentioned before journaling, you know, I've, mm -hmm. I've said, here's a prompt for your journal this week, take a walk and then journal. What was the most fascinating thing that you saw? Or if we're going to do this in a virtual classroom, again, using Zoom, it's like, take a walk, take a photograph. And when yes. we show up for class next week, show the photograph that you took that yeah. struck you about being out mm -hmm. in nature. It's Jamboard coming in again, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jamboard can do that also. Uh, there are some caveats with this. Okay. One of the things that I came to realize, and again, another student pointed this out to me, I was talking about this idea of hiking. And this student said, look, I don't hike. I hate hiking. And I realized, you know, my experience in nature, my appreciation for the things that I see in the external environment are specific to me and not everyone feels the same way about that. So you have to be aware that it, it, it's difficult to foist your interaction with nature on others and recognize that other people have other ways of doing it. Maybe the most surprising thing that I heard in this regard was I was at one of the resilience group meetings and we talked about this idea of nature. And one of the other faculty people mentioned that they had a student who had a different perspective. And this was because we were talking about Maybe we should make a map of the main campus at UW because there's so many beautiful spots on campus, not only the architecture, but the nature environment. I mean, just north of the medical center is this healing garden with all sorts of different plant life that has that have been used over the years for healing. And so wouldn't this be great? We'll create a map where students can go and, and experience nature on campus. And one of the students in this faculty members course said, look, the last place I want to be when I'm not in class is on campus. I'm so stressed and so nervous and have so much anxiety about the classes that I have here that being anywhere on campus reminds me of that. So the minute I'm out of class, I have to get off campus. So again, a thing to be aware of is that not everyone experiences the outdoor environment the same way that we do. And being open to the idea that, hey, for this student, where would be a place you could go that would bring you a bit of relaxation, some self-compassion, right. some mindfulness? Yeah, I guess there's issues of access and equity related to that too. Exactly. So that's exactly. A, that's one to to think a little bit more carefully about perhaps before incorporating. Yeah. Yeah. We could also talk about 
the flip side of that coin, this indoor environment. I remember all the times the students have said, hey, can we open the windows? And and we said, no, no, we got to pull the drapes because you won't pay attention. <laughs> of course, we know that if they're not paying attention, it's not because of the curtain or the window. It's because they have decided that your lecture may not be worth paying attention to. So I've moved to the idea of not only opening the curtains, but also if you can open the windows and have some fresh air come in. You mentioned this idea of just walking over and looking out the window. So thinking about how we design our classroom space is important. I, I suspect we all kind of know that most classrooms we have are pretty poorly designed for learning. Mm -hmm. They're really well designed for the sage on the stage who wants to deliver yeah. a monologue. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember years ago, I got invited to be on a focus group with some architects. This was when UW was starting to develop this concept of the active learning classrooms. And I went to some of these meetings and I was surprised that much of the discussion was how to build the lectern. Because as we know now, <laughs> there's all sorts of audio and video devices that mm -hmm. you need to put in. You can control the cameras in the room, et cetera. I had to say at one point in time, wait, the problem is not how to design the lectern. The problem is the lectern itself it puts this barrier between you and your learners. Mm -hmm. So the nice thing that they eventually did was they put the lectern in these active learning classrooms on wheels. So in my case, I put huh? it all the way over in the corner because I don't want that to stand between me and the students. So that idea of thinking about going all the way back to this notion of connectedness, social connectedness, what is it in our classrooms that actually puts this wall up between us and the students? And in many cases, between students and other students. 25 desks all facing forward doesn't really uh, allow for much social interaction. So the nice thing about the active learning classrooms are small tables where students can face each other. So again, I think there's a lot of things we can think about in terms of improving the indoor environment, the classroom mm -hmm. environment that mm -hmm. will also lead towards all of these characteristics of well-being and resilience. It's funny, David, I was at a conference recently and there's a university in Queensland in Australia where they've built a set of thinking steps and they recommend people go out to the thinking steps and they're built so that you can't look at a device while you go on them. The treads are irregular, <laughs> I think. But they talk about the thinking steps and the people go out, you know, to this set of thinking steps when they when they need a break and a recharge. Yeah. <laughs> that, that That's a great idea. And it reminded me of this idea of how can you create an environment that does mm. not allow for distractive behaviors, like you can't use your phone. I don't know what these steps look like, but I kind of imagine irregular steps, both in terms of length and, and depth, so that they might fall down if they're not paying attention to the steps. I, don't, I suspect that's not the case. Well, it might be textures and, and things like that too. I, you know, I don't know. I was at a conference years ago back at Vanderbilt that was put together by the National Library of Medicine to try to understand new roles that would be necessary in healthcare in this world of informatics. And this was a brilliant classroom. It was like a, a Montessori classroom, little toys and games and movable boards all around. But they had this brilliant idea that every now and again, they would take, I think there were 50 faculty people from around the country there, and they'd put them into small groups of five or eight people and give them a task. You have 17 minutes to come up with this answer. And at minute 16 and a half, they'd start to turn up the music. And the music had been playing the entire time, something I often do when students are in small group, giving them some background music to listen to. Um, if I want to get them excited, some powerful music. If I want them to calm down, some more subtle music. What this group did, though, is at about when there's only 30 seconds left, started turning up the volume. And when it got 17 minutes, it was so loud that the faculty members couldn't talk anymore. And of course, as you know, putting five or eight faculty members in a group, they'll talk for 17 hours. <laughs> so this idea of how to bring them back into mm. the main group was simply not enabling them to have any more conversation. I don't think it was brilliant. 
<laughs> Thank you for all of those, David. It feels like we've got a lot of almost a smorgasbord of techniques. And I, I think I'd, I, I would encourage our listeners to think about ways of combining them sometimes, like your idea of journaling about gratitude or using the opening ritual to be a sort of a body scan or a mindful minute or something like that. And I think I think that's really a powerful thing to consider. And, and it's fun and creative as an educator to think about ways to incorporate that. I guess I'd like to perhaps think about wrapping up by having you talk about what you think teachers might reasonably expect to happen once they introduce these practices. Well, I, I think the anecdote I told about opening two-minute to three-minute meditation, and by the way, I, I both have used just a set of chimes as a background music, but also I think it's either UCLA or USC has a number of free guided meditation audios that you can download. If you want to actually guide them through that meditation, you can do that. So as I mentioned before, my expectation was they're going to hate this, and it turned out to completely, be completely wrong. I think you'll find that more often than not, they will appreciate the effort and they'll actually not only appreciate the effort, but appreciate the activity as well. So be prepared to be surprised by what works. But also if you find something that really just doesn't work, this gets back to the, your own growth mindset and realize, oh yeah, that, that was a failure. Let's not do that again. So I think, yeah, having your expectations be that, hey, this is just something I'm going to try and let's see what happens. The other expectation I think would be as we know, with any group of students, you'll never get 100% agreement with what works and what doesn't. And, and my goal is I can't ever please everyone. So I'm going to do my best to please and engage and energize as many people as I can. But if you get some folks who don't find it useful, then just accept that as, as the nature of any large group of people that you work with. So I guess ultimately my advice for thinking about some of these practices, I'll just say two things. Uh, actually, no, three. <laughs> Three things. One, and this comes right from the guidebook, just read, read, read. There are so many resources out there around the research over why these techniques are good and important and can help with overall student well-being. So there's the academic literature, there's the practical literature like the, the guidebook. There's listening to podcasts like this to see how other people have tried to do this. It takes a while to get past the resistance, both within ourselves and within our faculty groups and our departments to actually do these things. So the more you read about it, the better you will start to have a feeling that, hey, this is supported by the evidence and it's something I can try. Second thing I'll say is you have to take a developmental approach. When I've talked to other faculty groups that I'm involved with, I say, you know, we've given you, what, 15, 20 different things that you could possibly do. Just do one at a time. Mm -hmm. Simplest thing to do, try the two-minute opening meditation piece. It takes two minutes. It takes you 10 minutes to find an audio file to back it up and just see if it works. If it does, continue that one and then maybe add another one. And then the final and probably the most important thing is this concept of authenticity. If you do this as a performative nature and the students very well quickly figure out that you don't believe it in yourself. So if you're going to do this, you have to do it with authenticity. It takes me back to Parker Palmer's famous quote, good teaching can't be reduced to technique. Good teaching comes from the identity and integrity of the teacher. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to try these things, you've got to do them because you actually believe the need is important. You believe that the research is meaningful and you believe you can make a difference and they will very quickly sort that out. So don't do this if you don't really feel it's the right thing to do, that you can support it, that you can believe in it. And if you do, I think you'll have a much higher likelihood of success. 
Oh, thank you again, David, for joining us and sharing all that wisdom. I'm so glad that we had the chance to talk to you about what I really feel is a critical aspect of teaching, especially now. I think we might gently challenge our listeners to be brave and think about baby steps and incorporating one or two of the practices and just trying it out as part of a growth mindset and see where it takes us. Thank you so much again. Totally agree. You, you and I have talked about this before, but keep in mind that perhaps one of the best outcomes of all of this is not that your students will improve their well-being and their resilience, but it will be very likely hugely fulfilling to you yourself. This is probably the highlight of my academic teaching career. Mm-hmm. I felt that there's nothing that I've done that's more important, more important. to the students and more Great. important to my own well-being than doing these activities. Thanks, David. Thanks. I'd love to talk with any of your listeners. If they'd be interested, um, they know how to find me. Okay. Thanks very much, David. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this two-part series on humanizing the classroom with David Masuda. We hope you are excited to try some of these techniques in your classroom and beyond. Please check out the show notes for resources mentioned in both of these episodes. Thanks. Thanks.